to Mark chapter 12, page 933 in a pew Bible, Mark chapter 12. We are moving right along. Mark chapter 12, page 933 in a pew Bible. Last week was the parable of the tenants, and now we are this uh, interesting passage uh, where they try to trap Jesus. They're trying to test him, and they come at him talking about taxes. Taxes are something that all of us are familiar with. April 15th, tax day. We all know that there is sales tax and we have to pay our taxes and nothing's free and give money to the government and all of that sort of stuff. Same, same idea comes up here in this passage, but it's not so much about taxes and what you do with them, but rather uh, their testing of Jesus. Read with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We've been in Mark for a while, and we continue to marvel at him, do we not? Our Lord God and Savior is divine. He is the God-man He is fascinating. He navigates through life in the coolest way anybody possibly can. There is no deceit in him. There is no flaw in him. There is no sin in him. He is the holy God walking amongst us in the flesh. It is an awesome study to look at the life of Jesus And even when religious leaders and even when educated people and even when successful people come at him, they can't really get at him. That's Jesus. We thank God for our Lord and Savior and the opportunity to study his life. I want to give you three points today. Number one, the testing of God. The testing of God. They were testing God. Number two, empty Praise, empty praise. Number number three, pay what is owed. Pay what is owed. The testing of God, empty praise, and pay what is owed. The testing of God is my first point today because this is the setting. As you see in verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They had to send them because you might remember what we looked at last week. Remember the parable of the tenants? Jesus tells that parable talking about how they are rejecting the son sent by the father. But look at verse 12 right, right above, 12, 12. 
They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. They were troubled, remember? After Jesus told the parable of the tenants, they were uh, uh, awakened, they were alerted, they were warned that God is talking about them. God is warning them that they have rejected the Son that God the Father has sent, and they could tell that he was talking about them, so they went away. Now, they wanted to get him. They wanted to arrest him. They're hoping to get rid of him altogether. He is shaking up their religion. He's shaking up their their system. He's shaking up their lives. He's making people uncomfortable. And you know that being uncomfortable is good sometimes and necessary. It's appropriate. And this is what Jesus does to religious people, even Baptists, even Baptists in Fairdale. Jesus will make you uncomfortable and shake up your life if you want to really look at him and you want to bow down to him and surrender to him. And this is what he does. And so they could tell that he was talking about them and it bothered them. So they went away. And so from a distance now in our passage today, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. It tells us that they are doing this intentionally. They want to test him. They want to trap him. Verse 13 says to trap him. Verse 15, Jesus says, why do you put me to the test? They knew that they wanted to trap him. Jesus knew that they wanted to trap him. It's really a comical scene to us once you get past how sad it is. Testing God. Do y'all realize that people test God often? Do you realize that people want to trap God often? Are you aware that there are many out there that mock him? There are many out there who will say, well, he says this here and he says this here. It must not be right. If God did this, then why doesn't he do this? If God was real, why doesn't he do this? And there's this flippant, irreverent, unbelieving attitude toward him. Who goes to God and says, let's trap him? But it's common. Turn with me a little bit. Just turn back a few chapters to chapter 8. Right here in Mark. Turn back to chapter 8. This is right at, look at verse 11, 8, 11. This is right after Jesus fed the 4,000. Remember that? In verse 11 it says, The Pharisees came, this is 8, 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Does everybody see that? And and I remember preaching it. I don't know if you remember listening to it. Do you see what they're arguing over? They want a sign. Do you remember what he had just done? He had just fed 4,000 people out of nothing. That's a real enough sign if you believe in God. But they wanted to test him. The proof was there. The miracle was there. The hand of God was there. They said, well, give us another sign. And they were testing him. This is common. 
Turn over to chapter 10, verse 2. You might remember this. Remember, we did two weeks in a row on marriage and divorce. And look at chapter 10, verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They wanted to test him. They wanted to test him, too, on on, on simple things. Now, chapter 8, testing him on a sign, that may sound like a sign. Like, if you're really God, then why don't you do some miracle to prove it? But here is just an explanation on divorce is what they're seeking, and they are calling it a test again. Second time we've seen them want to test him. Look at chapter 11, verse 28. Just a few weeks ago. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They went to the one with the authority and they asked him, Who said that you could do this? They're trying him. This is just in the Gospel of Mark, very quickly, a little bit of an overview. People do this a lot. But it's about to pick up even more. What's going to happen, folks, in chapter 12 is they're all coming at him now. Remember, we are close to him dying. We're nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is in his final days, literally his final three days. In our passage today... The Pharisees and the Herodians come to him to trap him. But look down to verse 18. The Sadducees, this will be be next week. The Sadducees came to him and they say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question about divorce and remarriage again. Actually, when somebody dies in marriage again. So now they're coming at him. Now go to the next passage. Look at verse 28. Now the scribes. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Our chapter today is the testing of God getting more climactic. This is the, 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 the testing of God intensifying. The Pharisees are coming at him. Next week, the Sadducees are coming at him. The next week, the scribes are coming at him. And this is all happening right here in this same day. There are many, many people out there who want to test God. Why is that? Well, you test him or trap him, as it says in 12, 13. When you're convinced you're right and he's wrong. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones who knew what they believed about God. And in their pride and arrogance, they could not be the problem. So it had to be him. They leaned more on their own wisdom than they did on God's wisdom. Folks, I want to warn you and caution you here today that whether directly like they are here or indirectly, you're not testing God. That you're not trying to trap God. 
that you're not living in a way that God has already spoken against and trying to explain it away. That you're not doing things that your conscience is convicted of, that the Holy Spirit is burdening you of, that you are guilty of and you feel that and you're trying to explain it away. And you have excuses upon excuses and you are testing God or even trying to trap God because you refuse to admit that you're wrong and God's way is best. I've reminded you guys often that God's way is the best way. But we see ourselves going against that clearly when we think we are right. The mind of the believer is not one that has all the answers. The mind of the believer is one that humbles itself saying, I don't have all the answers, and that submits itself by a faith, a true, sincere faith to God who does have all the answers. We need to We need to be careful, people, that we're not trying to trap God, that we're not trying to test God. We need to humble ourselves and submit to God. Proverbs 3 says, be not wise in your own eyes. Do not lean on your own understanding. Bow your knee. Bow your heart. Confess your sins. Humble yourself. That you are not testing God, but you are approving God. You are affirming God. You are believing in God. You are trusting God. There are many things here that the Pharisees get right about life and religion. Their problem is they don't know that their sins are offensive to God and that they desperately need forgiveness. And in their pride and arrogance, when Jesus comes telling them that, that they they need to repent, they push back against him. It's not on their radar. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's right, and we do need to humble ourselves. They don't consider that. And so the only option is to push back against him. Folks, don't be pushing back against God. Don't be pushing back against the truth of God. Don't be testing God. That's what they were doing. Well, how? How did they test him? Well, secondly, they came with empty praise. And this is bothersome. It's really disgusting. Verse 14, they came and said to him, teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. That's some compliment right there, right? That's flowery. That is flattering. That is awesome, if they meant it, right? Isn't that a high compliment? Wouldn't you love for somebody to say that about you? Wouldn't you love, even in your, even in your own mind, to know that you are not swayed by, any, by anyone's opinion? You are not swayed. You do not care about other people's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances. You are solely focused, clearly, tunnel vision on God and being approved by him. And what everybody else says or thinks does not mean anything to you. That's what they're saying about him. Y'all, that is the way of life, and they knew that. 
They are the Jewish people and the leaders of the Jews. They do know very, very well the Old Testament Word of God. They know what God is like. They know God's holiness on so many levels. And so when it comes time to start speaking about a good, godly, holy, and righteous character, they can do it. And so they addressed him this way. They knew it. They're very familiar with godly character. If you'll remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he said something very similar. He said, teacher, we know that you're from God. He didn't believe in him, but he said, we know that you're from God. And we know that the way you teach is unlike anybody else. And so we can tell that there's something godly about you. And here they just come with all of this flattery. But the problem is it's It's empty. In verse 15, Jesus tells us that he knew their hypocrisy. They didn't mean it. They said all of those great things about him, but they didn't mean it. There are parallel passages to this, uh, this, this Mark 12 passage. It's in Matthew, and it's also in Luke. And let me tell you what it says in those. In Mark here, it says that Jesus knew that they were hypocrites. They didn't really mean that. They were just saying that. In Matthew, it doesn't say that. It says, Jesus knew their evil intent. He knew their malice. He knew that they were bad. He knew that they were evil. He knew that they were motivated by evil. In Luke, it says that they came as spies pretending to be sincere. We're talking about religious people. We're talking about those who say they're the people of God. Malice, hypocrites, evil intentions, spies who pretend to be sincere. And then he says in Luke also, he says that Jesus perceived that they were crafty. He knew they wanted to trap him. It reminds me of John chapter 2 where Jesus says, He knew what was inside of man. Jesus in John chapter 2 verse 25 tells us that he he knows what's inside of us. Folks, my second point here today, that they tried to trap him by coming at him with empty praise. Y'all, we need to be warned. Say what you want about God and say what you want to God. If it's not coming from a heart that sincerely believes that, Jesus knows. We may not. Y'all look to me like nice looking people today. And I heard you singing. We even did a whole chorus with no instruments, right? It was awesome. And I could hear you guys singing. Y'all just did the offering, two offerings today. Y'all should feel really good about yourselves. We may have each other fooled, but we will not fool God. He knows where your heart is right now. He knows that some of y'all are raging. He knows that some of you all can't wait for this to end and get out of here. He knows that some of you all should not take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. And he knows that some of y'all will even consider, even after I mention, don't take it. Some of you will take it just so other people don't see that you don't take it. He sees it. 
Some of y'all know that today ought to be the day that you hit your knees and say, Lord, have mercy upon me. He knows that. The empty praise that people give to God means nothing. They came at him with this awesome stuff. If I had just taken this quote and not told y'all to look at Mark chapter 12 today, and I had just put this up here by itself, and it says, Teacher, we know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. I'd have said, is that good? Y'all would have said, yes. I said, is that praise? Yes. Is that worship to God? Yes. Is that a good statement? Yes. And it is except for that it came from people that didn't believe it. It came from people that didn't love that about him. It came from people that didn't appreciate that God is a merciful God that saves sinners, and God is a holy judge that judges righteous people that never repent of their sins. And the Pharisees didn't understand this either. The empty praise of this passage is to warn us. Because church people do a lot of things in the name of God. Some of y'all just put in 15 or 20 hours this week on serving the kids for VBS. Takes a lot of work. Some of y'all gave a lot of donations, a lot of time. Some of y'all have given money. Some of y'all just put in more money for the, for the offering for Ecuador. Church people do a lot of things in the name of God. If we're not careful, we will naturally drift into thinking, I'm a, I'm a good guy. And when you start thinking how good you are, you start thinking that God is pleased with how good you are. But the gospel teaches us, folks, that we are loved by God not because of how good we are, but we are loved by God how bad we are because of Jesus. Jesus loves us while we were yet sinners. And being unlovable as we are in our sins, listen to me, unlovable as we are in our sins God loves us anyway and therefore makes us lovable. We're not lovable because of who we are. We are lovable because of who he is. And if you try praising him on your own strength because of how good you are, it's not praise. He doesn't want it. He saw their hypocrisy. He could tell their evil intent. You and I couldn't. If somebody walked in here right now and said those words to us, we would naturally think, man, that's great. They love the Lord. But the honest truth is, we don't know. Folks, we need to be careful with empty praise. 
We need to make sure that the words that come out of our mouth are the meditations of our heart. That before it gets to the air and to the vocal cords, before it gets to our ears, it's already been treasured in our heart. I thought it was interesting in our call to worship. I was a little bit convicted by it. In Psalm 5 of our call to worship today, it says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. I started wondering, was that first song today the first time he heard your voice? Were you singing because you came to worship or were you singing because everybody else was? Were you praising him because your heart so treasures him? And your honest truth is you are bound for hell in judgment were it not for the blood of Christ. And you're here today to praise him because of that great love for you. Or were you singing because Joe said it's time to stand and sing? Empty praise ought to bother us. Commentator Edwards on this says, despite the insincerity of the Pharisees, it is a true statement. Jesus is indeed such a person as they describe him to be, hypocritical as they are, evil as they are, crafty as they are. What they're saying is true. Listen to this, though. Moreover, a person who is not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are is unlikely to be influenced by such flattery. Amen. And they didn't get that. Their evil, crafty, hypocritical ways have them in position to try to trap him by flattery. God is not trapped. God is not tested. God doesn't buy into our flattery. He can't be wooed that way. So how did they trap him, or rather try? They were testing God. They came with empty praise And then they brought it to money and taxes. They asked the question at the end of verse 14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Jesus answers them, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? So here's what they're doing. Okay? Pay taxes to Caesars, what you're supposed to do in Rome. And so here's what's happening. If Jesus says don't pay taxes to Caesar, then it looks like he's going against the Roman government and it's going to look like he's a bad citizen and they're all going to be upset with him. Okay? If he does, if he does say, yes, you're supposed to do it, Jesus being a Jew who the Jews are looking at him to see whether he's a real Jew or not, It's going to upset the Jews because the Jews are aware that this tax is something that the Roman government is doing simply to burden them. It's a tax upon the other taxes that they already have to pay. And so they think they have him trapped. If he says this, then this group's going to be mad. If he says this, then this group's going to be mad. Either way, they think they've got him to where somebody's going to be mad mad at him. And so their wanting to get rid of him is going to be a bigger crowd now. It's at least going to be half of the people, maybe this half or maybe this half. But it's about to be a large number of people that are against of Jesus as soon as he picks a side. 
Jesus is more crafty than the crafty. Jesus is God. God is not tricked or mocked. God is not outdone or outplayed. You can't get him. So Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. It's very humorous in this passage that the ones asking the questions are the one that have the denarius and the one they're asking it to doesn't. Jesus doesn't pull a denarius out of his pocket and say, well, let's take a look at it. Jesus himself doesn't even have one. It's humorous in itself. It's ironic, is it not? Jesus says, bring me a denarius. Now, a denarius is a coin, a small coin, a small silver coin that was about a day's wage. That's what they say, about a day's wage for a laborer. And on it, it had the picture of Caesar. Uh, Tiberius Caesar would have had his picture on there, made in Rome, minted by the Caesar, okay? And Jesus says, well, let me see it. So they bring him one. And you know they're thinking, oh, about to get him. He, he didn't skate around the question. He didn't ignore us. He didn't run away. He wants to see one. We're about to get him. If he says this, then they're mad and we got him right where we wanted. If he says this, then they're mad and we got him right where we wanted. That's what they're thinking. So Jesus says, bring it to me. Verse 16, and they brought one. He said to them, who's this on here? You do this in elementary school with the kids, right? Like who's on the penny and who's on the dime and who's on the nickel and who's on the quarter. And most kids in elementary school should be able to tell you that, although we've long forgotten. But this is what he does. He says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Can you picture that? They're thinking, "He's he's walking right into it. Caesar's. Oh, that's Caesar, Jesus. Jesus says, okay, verse 17. Well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. They're stuck. It answers both questions. It satisfies both sides. If you owe it to Caesar, give it to him. If you owe it to God, give it to him. Jesus is brilliant. He can't be trapped. He can't be trapped. He literally cannot be trapped. What makes Jesus' brilliance even more brilliant is that for those that know, know, those who have ears to hear, hear, those that have eyes to see, see, that when Jesus says, if it's God's, give it to God, knows that he's talking about everything. And those that understand that everything is God's understand that we're glad to give whoever is whoever's knowing that it's a part of our belief in God. God teaches us this. D.A. Carson says obligations to God and state are not necessarily in conflict. Though obedience to God takes unquestioned priority. Everybody knows that. If the state is asking you to do something that God is asking you not to do, you listen to God. You don't disobey God for obeying the state. But they're not necessarily in conflict. John MacArthur says, Christ recognized that all citizens have duties to the secular state. It's a part of it. We pay our taxes too. 
as well as duties to God. We have duties to the state and duties to God. And he recognized a legitimate distinction between the two. Listen to this. The coin bears Caesar's image, so give it to him. But you bear God's image, so give it to him. Give you to him. Give yourself to him. The coin, the denarius, was stamped with the image of Caesar. Give it to him. Your body, every person here has been stamped with the image of God. So give it to him. And this is nothing new. You've heard this many, many times. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. All of it is from God. Revelation 4.11, in the heavens, around the throne, they sing, we will sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Everything is God's, and we know that. And God has brought us into his family by the work of Christ, to which we gladly say we are willing to give and give and give and do and do and do. I had a conversation with somebody up at the youth league this week. We're going over all the technical rules of these baseball tournaments that are coming up, and people were getting frustrated by them. And I said, hey, we like rules. I'm okay with rules. Tell us the rules and we're going to follow them. Even bad rules, we're going to follow them. Even rules we wouldn't choose, we're going to follow them. Just tell us what the rules are. It's when we don't understand the rules or don't know the rules that things get hectic, when things are out of control. When we come to understand that life is God's, God made us, he's our maker, he loves us, he forgives us. When we come to understand that, we find true freedom, we find true life. We now live for God. If we've got to pay our taxes, we're glad to pay our taxes. We don't like it, but we understand it because God is the one who gives to us. Everything comes from God. Had a conversation last night with a lady I know who is such a huge giver. And I said, thank you so much for, for, for your giving. And she said, the more and more I give, the more and more I get. She told me that last night. She, kept, she said, I can't stop giving. I can't get rid of my money. There's more of it every time I give. That's what she said to me. We understand this about God. God is God. And he's asked us to believe in him. And he sent his son Jesus to die for us. And through that, we are brought into his family. He's our father in heaven. He takes care of us. We don't have to worry. If it's Caesar's, then give it to Caesar. Because we're already giving everything to God. Commentator says, this passage affirms that there are duties to governments that do not infringe upon ultimate duties to God. We're not getting in the way. We're walking by faith. God is our Father. He knows what He's doing. He won't leave us or forsake us. He's a shepherd that's leading us, His sheep. He has us. He goes on to say, one cannot consider, listen to this, Political and civil duties apart from faith. 
but only as expressions of the prior and ultimate claims of God. These successful, religious, moral, conscious people, they knew that Jesus just told that parable about them rejecting the son sent from the father. So they left. Then they came up with a plan and they sent the Pharisees to trap him. And they thought this question was going to get him good. And his answer is, if it's owed to Caesar, pay it to Caesar. And if it's owed to God, give it to God. To which everybody who believes says, I owe him everything. You know, I got to thinking about that this week. I feel good. I'm healthy. And I got a friend right here in Fairdale who has got such poor health. He's the exact same age as me. Graduated the same year as me. And he's just got terrible health. He's not doing well. Why is that the case? Is that because I'm so good at drinking my water every day and I'm producing this health and he's not? God gave me this health. You know, I started thinking about how great of a wife I've got and how much she puts up with me and loves me and I started thinking, you know, why is that? that, Am I just this amazing husband that Val can't resist? No, no. The Bible says that our wives are a gift. I've got good parents. They're both alive. They both love me. I started thinking to myself, they're lucky to have me. Just kidding. I started thinking to myself, why in the world? Why in the world do I have such good parents? God gave them to me. Started thinking, why? Why did God give us such a good church? We know so many people that are in the ministry hurting and suffering because they can't get along with their church. I didn't know you guys and y'all didn't know me. God gave us this. I start looking at everything in life. I love my kids. I started thinking, why, why, why do I have these five kids that I love so much? God gave them to me. When you start realizing, y'all, that everything you got is from him. It's from him, it's through him, and it's for him, Romans eleven thirty six 36 says. It's for him. The proper response is, if it's God's, Give it back to God. Approach it with faith. Be informed by the truth. Believe in him. Look to him. Hear from him. And then give it all right back. So is the way of God. So is the way of life. That everything in our life is an offering back to God. As Romans 12 says, Present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Alive and well, not dead. Alive and well, but giving it all back to him with joy and gladness.
They tried to test God. They came with empty praise. They wanted to understand, who do we pay it to? Jesus says, if you owe it to him, pay it to him. And if you owe it to God, give it to God. It's a both and. It's a beautiful answer. But it's an answer of those who know God that say, yes, exactly right. During the summertime is when sports and athletes are trading teams and money's thrown around and contracts are happening. It seems like in the NHL, hockey, the NFL, football, the NBA, basketball, the ones that aren't playing right now, it seems like that money is going around everywhere and everybody's getting a new contract. In the NFL, the National Football League, they just handed out the largest contract in pro football history. Not sure if you heard about it. The quarterback of the Raiders, I'm not sure if they're Oakland or Los Angeles or where the Raiders are anymore, or maybe Las Vegas now, actually. But the Raiders just gave their quarterback, Derek Carr, you may have never heard of him, they just gave their quarterback the largest contract in pro football history. Five years, $125 million. That's a lot, isn't it? Five years, $125 million to be the quarterback for the Raiders. At his press conference, he was happy as can be. I was watching it. And one of the news reporters said to him, well, we all know that you're a man of priorities. What are you going to do with all that money? And I quote, I'm going to eat a lot of Chick-fil-A. He laughed. He said, no, I'm just kidding. He said, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to go tithe to my church. you imagine a tithe on $125 million? Great day. He said, I'm going to go tithe to my church. I'm going to go buy my wife a gift, and nothing else will change. That's what he said. He said, I want you all to know that that's how I've always been. He said, in college on a scholarship, they give you $700 a semester for spending money. He said, when they'd give me that $700 check, the first thing I would do was go tithe to my church. Fascinating. He's a big timer. He makes a lot of money. I don't know how much y'all have, but it seems like a lot of money that he's got. $125 million. And yet, in his mind, if you owe it to Caesar, give it to Caesar. If you owe it to God, give it to God. Folks, this is the church of Jesus. Apart from him, John 15, 4, we can do nothing. But once we come to know him, our entire lives are a response to him. We are parents wanting to parent back to God. We are husbands wanting to husband our wives back to God. We are grandparents wanting to grandparent our children back to God. We are workers wanting to bend our backs and use our muscles and use our brains back to the glory of God. We are stewards of our health and our time and our money and everything else wanting to use it back to God. May our lives be worshiped to him. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for this passage in which they tried to trap Jesus 
And within just a few verses, five verses here today, we are seeing that Jesus cannot be trapped. But Jesus is teaching us to give our whole selves to God. Oh, Father, we ask that you would work that in our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.